If you have your Bibles with you, open them to the book of Galatians. While we will be reading uh, verses 6 through 10, um, I would like for you, if you can, to focus on verse 6, which is where we will be spending our time this morning. Read with me as we read from the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of our God. You can think of the book of Galatians as being written with three principal parties in mind. And you can even think of this like an after-school special. So there is a small child who finds in the street one day a dog, and the dog is dirty and he has no tags, and he takes that dog in and he cleans him and he makes him feel very welcomed and they have a budding relationship that goes throughout and then all of a sudden they find out that that dog does belong to somebody else and he has come back to claim that dog. And so that dog is now in between these two parties and each one is calling the dog to themselves to see who they will agree with. In one corner we have Paul who is calling the Galatians back to the gospel. He's calling the Galatians back to Christ and back even in some sense to himself. And we have in the other corner the agitators who are trying to upset the Galatians according to Paul who are trying to call them into circumcision at the very least and perhaps even into the law. Out of these three Last week, we got to meet Paul. We know something of Paul's conversion. We know something of his, his calling. We know something of the gospel that he preached. And today, we get to meet the Galatians. The Galatians were rife with problems. They very, as we read here, quickly and astonishingly have been turning away from the gospel. That gospel that Paul would have preached to them would have sounded much like what we heard last week, that Paul would have approached them and talked to them about the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that by his wounds, they can be healed. That because Christ died, they no longer have the penalty of their sins. And because he was raised, he is now the living king of all of Israel and indeed all of the world. They would have heeded these words by Paul. But soon something would have happened and they would have been moved away. To help us understand what's going on in verse 6, I'm going to read, you don't need to turn there, but I'm going to read from Psalm 1. Psalm 1 reads like this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. And its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked, they are not so. But they are like chaff the wind drives away. 
Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Like much of the wisdom literature, Psalm 1 breaks the world down into two groups of people. There is the wise, and there are the wicked. There are the righteous ones, and then there are those who will be like chaff. The picture between the oak or the tree and the chaff couldn't be any more stark. An oak that grows next to a river can grow with its roots going deep down into the ground. It has plenty of nourishment. The water from the river provides water for the tree. The nutrients from the soil provide all the nutrients that it needs. It should grow strong, and that tree should be fairly immovable, unlike the chaff. The chaff, on the other hand, is what comes from the waste of the wheat. You bring in wheat from the harvest, and you smack it on the ground. And then what you do is you take a fork and you throw it up into the air. And the light chaff, which is blown away by the wind, is then removed. And what you have left then is the edible portion of the wheat. The chaff, unlike the tree, just goes wherever the wind takes it. And one's reminded immediately of the book of James. Blown by the winds of the world, the, wi- the men and women of the world just turn and, and toss to and fro wherever they might be. That is the way of the wicked. Certainly Paul when he planted the Galatian church, thought that this church was not chaff. He thought it was an oak. You hear this when he talks about being astonished. Paul is absolutely floored that these people have turned so quickly from the gospel. He didn't expect it. There's a sense in which this is This is almost like watching somebody do something totally idiotic where you slap your hands on your head and you say, I cannot believe that. I'm astonished that you would have been so silly and so foolish to have done this. People have looked at me and done that and I have looked at others and done that. There is a sense in which that is a bit of a rebuke for the Galatians. Paul is not over against that. But I do think that there's some astonishment, real astonishment by Paul. This was not something that he expected. He thought the Galatians were rooted and planted in the gospel. And now he is afraid that they are not anything but chaff. We too need to be like that tree planted by the river. And so as we walk through this verse today, we will be using that image of a tree planted by a river to sort of describe what Paul thinks is lacking in the Galatians And the first thing we need to find is that we must be planted. We must make sure that we are planted. Be planted, church. Paul is clearly astonished, thinking that these people have had their roots sown into the soil. He has found that they are loosened from that soil somehow. It's not that Paul wouldn't have known these people. He would have known these people incredibly well. Paul was a missionary, which means he did move quite considerably, from town to town and from place to place. He did want to spread the word of God, but we are mistaken to think that Paul simply was like an evangelist, that he would show up in a town, he would show up at a meeting, that he would throw out the word. If people responded to it, he would say, great, good luck, and then move off to another place. Paul rarely did that. As a matter of fact, the only times in which he did do that, he was forced to do that. Again, we think that the book of Galatians was probably written very early and on his first missionary journey. On that first missionary journey, we read things like this from the book of Acts. In Acts 14, 3 through 7. So they, that is Paul and Barnabas, remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. 
when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derb, cities of Laconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. They stayed there a long time until they could stay there no longer and they were driven out. Later in the same chapter, in verses 21 and 22, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. There's every indication that Paul knew these people well. And Paul was no fool. Paul looked at these people. He had lived with these people. He knew these people. And he thought, you are rooted in the gospel. You are planted in the gospel. And not long after that, he finds out that no, they might not be. And he is astonished. Oftentimes we pray for people. We pray for their physical needs. We pray when they come to us and they say, I need help. I need aid in this, this, or this. And sometimes, most of the time, those needs are solely physical. Sometimes they are spiritual. Sometimes they're emotional. We pray for people, but the vast majority of the time when we pray for people, it is because people bring needs to us. Let me encourage you to pray for people that you think are strong as well. Paul clearly thought, clearly thought that these people were strong in the Lord. He clearly thought that they had been planted and they had been rooted. Don't just pray for people who you know are suffering, that you know are weak, that you think might not be rooted as firmly as they should be in the gospel. You need to pray for even those people that you think are already planted in the gospel. Pray that they are truly planted in the gospel. Secondly, you cannot therefore assume, that's not the second point, second point under first point, you cannot therefore assume that people are indeed strong. If you think that you can judge people better than the Apostle Paul and whether or not they are in the Lord, congratulations, good for you, I doubt it. So you need to not assume that people are in the Lord and continue to pray for them. I have seen people whose lives are racked by sin and are unwilling and unable to be convinced of their sin and they're being cut off from before the Lord because a pastor convinces them that once saved, always saved. So as soon as they admit that they want anything to do with the Lord, no matter how they live their lives after that fact, it is impossible to move them again to a place of repentance. Do not assume simply because somebody utters something with their mouth that there is conversion there. Continue to pray with them. Continue to work with them to make sure that they are rightly planted in the gospel. And lastly, of course, you, friend, make sure that you are also planted in the gospel. Make sure that the gospel is the foundation of your life. Always double-check yourself in this. Do not rely upon what other people tell you. Don't rely on other people thinking that you're strong. Don't rely on other people thinking that you're planted. Don't rely on other people looking at you and saying, man, his roots must run deep. The Lord sees through that, even if Paul can't, and even if I can't, and even if all the friends and relatives you have can't, the Lord does. Make sure that you are planted in the gospel. Secondly, Make sure that you are growing in the gospel. Be growing, church. Be growing. These people turned quickly. They turned quickly. Now, that might be in reference to the fact that 
the agitators showed up and it didn't take much for them to turn. I think that that's true, but that's true because it didn't take long before Paul left before they turned. The quickly is not so much that they quickly turned by the agitators, but they quickly turned away from God. That Paul had come and had preached to them and the the gospel seemed to take root, but it didn't take much before they actually left that gospel and Paul just doesn't understand. You were so firm months ago and now all of a sudden all of it's up in the air. There's a famous quote by a church father named John Chrysostom. He says about this church in Galatia, Paul might question them like this, how is it that your seducers need not even time for their designs, but the first approaches suffice for your overthrow and capture? They didn't even need to, to wear you down with it. This is a situation where you would expect that there would have been a dark room, a hot lamp, and some sweating going on, hours and hours of questioning and and pressing upon them, waterboarding, before they cracked. And Paul says, they simply offered you a bologna sandwich and you gave it up. There was nothing there. Quickly, you turned. Even Solomon, excuse me, even Samson, had to be run down by Delilah before he gave it up. Delilah said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me three times. You have not told me where your great strength lies. Even though he knew that when she did it, right, she was just going to turn him over to the Philistines because that's what she did the other three times. She begged him and pressed him. Verse 16 of Judges 16 says, And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And then he told her. Just like the woman in Luke 18, in a parable that Jesus has where there's a woman who is denied justice by a judge who neither fears God nor man, and yet she walks up to him every day and bothers him and and presses on him and says, you need to give me justice. And he says, listen, I don't fear God and man, but I ain't taking that. So he gives her justice. And Paul says, none of that's happening. There's no pressure on you. There's no hardship placed upon you. You just turned quickly. It's not hard to believe that some of the reason why they turned quickly was because of their pure and unadulterated youth. It was a young church. It doesn't mean that it was young in terms of age. It means that it was immature in terms of deepening their roots in the Lord. They hadn't grown enough to be able to, be able to stand the attack from the agitators. There's a reason why we have elders in the church. That doesn't mean men who are old. It can mean men that are old, but it doesn't necessarily mean men that are old. Read in Paul, and it's amazing that while we call them elders, Paul doesn't say they need to be so old before they can do it. A man can be 25 and be qualified as an elder, where a 55-year-old man might never qualify as an elder. Because it's not elder in terms of maturity in age, but maturity in Christ. There's a reason why we want people who are mature leading churches and leading organizations. The immature are easy prey. So, church, you need to grow in the Lord. You need to blossom in your faith and deepen your faith. You cannot rest simply on a simple faith. And part of that is true. You should rest on a simple faith. You you might come to me and say, listen, I don't need to deepen my faith in order to be saved. I can be saved with a simple faith. 
I agree. You can go to the book of Romans and you can open it up and you can say that if somebody confesses the Lord Jesus Christ with their mouth and believes in their heart that he raised him from the dead, they will be saved. And that is always true. Amen. Forevermore. But a simple faith is not always a safe faith. Thinking this week, I, I recalled how many times in my life we've heard of these stories of people trying to escape from Cuba. They, they try to get out of Cuba to make it the 90 miles across shark-infected, infested, not infected, but shark-infested waters through, filled with storms on rickety rafts that they made with any materials that they could get their hands on. They take some sheet metal and some empty milk jugs, and that's good enough. Let's climb in it and let's go. Because that was the only thing they had. That was all they could muster to get it together. Listen, that raft might be enough to get them to the Florida coast, but it's not safe. And it would be foolish if they were given the materials to build a better boat and they refused to do it simply because that boat's good enough. I was reading a book this week by a man named Bill Bryson. Bill Bryson talked about, during the Industrial Revolution, some of the problems that came up very briefly, for decades really, not terribly briefly, but for decades, that that people had to work very hard to get around. And it wasn't a problem before the Industrial Revolution. So most of this problem surrounded the, the grouping of people together in London, And these were problems that that occurred in the United States as well, but the difference was the United States has a lot of land. People crowded into London. When their farms were no longer needed, their hands were no longer needed at the farm because what used to take people 10 men to do, machines were starting to replace those 10 men. And so they came to the cities for work, and the cities were unequivocally unable to deal with that much populace. And the waste and the filth that they produced... A very famous section of London called St. Giles. At one time it was recorded that 1,100 people crowded into simple, simply 27 houses in London. There was waste there, not just human waste, but discarded things of up to a depth of three feet. Cholera was rampant. Because when you live amongst waste, you get sick. That's just how it works. It's not just cholera, though, but also sicknesses that we haven't seen since. Diseases that we don't even know really what they were. Something called the sweating sickness. There was epidemics of this in 1485, 1508, 1517, 1528. We have no idea what this was. They just simply called it the sweating sickness. People would sweat, get very hot, and then die. It's because we were unable to get rid of the waste, mixed with the fact that these happened in slums where people were poor and they didn't have good nutrition was just set up for not only death, but rampant death. Listen, when you don't have good food, you will not grow. And when you don't remove what is going to make you sick, you are likely to get sick. Church, this is why we work very, very hard to place before you good theology, because good theology does both of those things. It feeds you what you need to live, and it gets out of you the things that you can't have in you, and it removes them from you. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive 
to obey Christ. He says, we work hard to make sure that everything that is worthless is destroyed. It is removed and it's taken far away from you. And that everything that is good, we take captive and press on it to make it obey Christ. In other words, we mature people. We want them to mature. We want them to feast on that which is good. Not everyone is going to be able to take in all of that food. Listen, some of you are not going to be professional theologians. You're you're not going to be able to write a book on theology. We are going to present stuff to you. We are going to say things in sermons and present studies to you and work through things in community groups that you are not going to understand all of. That's fine. To each as God has given him. Whatever you can take in, though, friend, take in. It's not a matter of how much. It's how much God allows you to. Strive to continually grow in the Lord. The idea that these people are so quickly turning is reminiscent of the idolatry that Doug spoke of even this morning as they turned to make a golden calf. Given what we've already read back in verse 4 where he says that they are delivered from the present evil age, that delivering from the present evil age sounds a lot like Exodus passages that talk about the people being delivered from Egypt. They are delivered from Egypt. They are brought out of Egypt. But we read very, very quickly of a problem that erupts when Moses refuses to come down from the mountain. Forty days he's been up there. God then, after the passage that Doug had read this morning, God turns to Moses, or in the passage that he read, and he says this, They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy lays it out in precisely the same way. Deuteronomy 9, 12 through 16, The Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them, and they have made themselves a metal image. Quickly, quickly, quickly. Paul turns to them and says the exact same thing has happened here in Galatia. Jesus Christ has delivered you from Egypt and how quickly you've turned back to false gods. Just like the people in the Exodus, the people in Galatia need to mature, be planted in the Lord, be growing in the Lord, and finally, be thick-barked. It's not the greatest, folks, but this is what you get, so... Be thick-barked. You ever seen a car, even of a decent size, run into a tree of a decent size? It is amazing how little damage is done to a tree. Trees can take an absolute beating. Paul is clearly hurt, not only in this passage, but throughout the rest of the book of Galatians. It, It seeps through in almost every single passage. If you read the book of Romans and you read Galatians, Romans... Paul speaks like a theological surgeon. It is precise. It is accurate. It's, it's almost withheld emotion is in the book of Romans, but in the book of Galatians, it's all over the place. This is a letter. I mean, the best example might be from a letter from a parent to a wayward child pleading with them to come back to a way that is good. And he is just worn down by this and clearly upset. But you'll notice that He is not here concerned so much that they are leaving him. It's clear that they have left him. 
that they now treat him as an enemy. He says so in 4.12 through 20, this highly emotional pleading to the Galatians. Don't you remember how you loved me? Don't you remember all those good things that you would have done for me? Don't you remember how you treated me when I first showed up there? You would have gouged out your eyes for me, and now am I your enemy because I've spoken the truth to you. Paul is clearly hurt, but his concern here is not to reestablish himself. He doesn't sound like a jaded lover saying, don't you know all the good things that I did for you? Don't you know how I, I have suffered for you? Don't you know I could have stayed in Antioch? I didn't need to come here. I didn't need to spend my time preaching to you people. I could have gone and I could have preached elsewhere. You don't appreciate anything I do for you. Paul doesn't say that. He doesn't say, why are you turning from me? But instead he says, why are you turning from God? Why are you turning from the one who has called you? Paul preached to them, but it was God who called them. This is not the only time that Paul has said something like this. In a much more positive passage, in Philippians 1, 12 through 18, Paul says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, this is Paul in prison writing this. He's writing about his imprisonment. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim, pro, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He says, a lot of people know that I'm in prison, but you need to know that this is a good thing. My, my being in prison has actually spurred people on, and some do it because my imprisonment. They, they are emboldened by my imprisonment. They, they look and say, perhaps Paul is clearly one who is happy being imprisoned. He has been imprisoned for the Lord and he is not ripped up about it. He is not taking back his confession and, and it must be true. Let's, let's go out all the more and proclaim the gospel. Perhaps they're saying, Paul is not out there to preach the gospel. We need to go out and preach the gospel. Either way, it is out of love for Paul and out of love for Christ that they are going out. But others, he says, others... Take this as an opportunity. Paul's out of the way. Let's, let's show him what good preaching is. Let's go and make sure that he knows that we're better preachers than he is. And we will show him that we are greater than he is. And we will do this by proclaiming Christ to the best of our abilities. And Paul says, I don't really care. I don't care if they think that they're better than me. I don't care if they're preaching him out of envy or rivalry. I care that the gospel goes forward. Paul is incredibly thick-skinned. He doesn't take this simply personally, although it is personal. And it's not just his own pain that he is concerned about, although he is hurt. What he is concerned about is that the Galatians might be lost. Listen, the gospel should be everything that your life is formed around. And therefore, when people reject it, it should hurt you. We, we don't think that the gospel is just like your favorite football team that you kind of like and you would like others to like as well, but if they don't, it's no skin off your back, whatever, you can go your own way. The gospel is indeed everything that you've built your life around. Listen to how Paul talks about the gospel, even over in chapter 2, verse 20. 
In the book of Galatians, we read this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, I am dead, but it is Christ who lives in me. It is the gospel. I am one with Christ and I am one with the gospel. There is no separation of the two. Listen to how he talks in Philippians 3. He talks about how if anyone is to boast about the things that they have done as far as work in the world, he is the greatest boaster of them all. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was circumcised on the eighth day. Before the law, he was blameless as a Pharisee. No one could point out the things that he has done wrong in the law. As far as zeal for the law, he went so far as to even persecute the church. And Paul then says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. He counts them as three foot of waste in St. Giles so that I may gain Christ. Listen, the gospel should be everything and when people reject it, they are no doubt rejecting you. They are rejecting you but you need to be thicker-skinned or thicker-barked than that. As a plant growing up in the Lord, you need to be thicker than that. Paul's love for the Galatians goes beyond a love for himself. He is hurt, but he is way more concerned that they are talking about walking away from the Lord. They are going to turn away from Christ and turn to circumcision and turn to the law. And he is broken up about not his own pain, but the pain that is coming to them. Do you know what happens when a car hits a tree? A tree is injured. The people are hurt much more. Paul is very concerned that the Galatians will not survive this. Be thick-barked, friends. Be more concerned with the love of others than with your own pain and sorrow. Your friends will reject you when they reject the gospel. Your family will reject you when they reject the gospel. Your co-workers will be rejecting you when they reject the gospel. But what's more, they are rejecting God. And they are walking themselves directly into the hands of an angry God. Be more concerned about that than you are about your own pain. It is important, then, that you are planted, that you are growing, and that you are thick-barked. Let us not simply read the failures of others and simply thank God that we're not like that. Let's not read about the failure of the Galatians and say, I'm grateful, Father, that I am not tempted in the way the Galatians are tempted. Hopefully by the time we're done with next week, you'll think I'm tempted all the time like the Galatians are tempted. But we can all, in in very subtle ways, be like the Pharisee who thank God that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector in Luke 18. You can easily read things like this and simply look at the Galatians and say, oh, thank God that I am not like the Galatians. So easy is it for us to thank God that we're not like them who quickly and astonishingly turned from God Let us do more than that. Not simply looking at their example, but realizing that we, outside of God's grace, would also turn in our own flesh and in our pride and quickly deny Christ and the gospel. 
So be provoked this morning to grow in God in knowledge and holiness, to fulfill Christ's work in us and among us by making us blameless, pure, mature, and without reproach. Let us be provoked even all the more to be found in Christ, nourished by his sacrifice even now as we head to his supper. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus Christ. We do not read the example of the Galatians and think that we are better than them, but we know it is only by your grace that we are held in the gospel. As we sing often, our faith is often cold. But we pray, you will hold us fast. We ask that you do this. That this serves as a warning and a rebuke to those of us who might not seek and strive with all of our hearts after you. That we might be awoken to our need of the gospel daily, to be fed off of it, to find our identity in it, and by finding our identity in it, to love others for its sake all the more, to show them the greatness and the goodness of Jesus Christ our Lord, that they too might be planted and matured in the Lord. We do this because you have told us to do it, but we do it because it is our great joy and glory to know that Jesus Christ is lifted up high and mighty, not just finally, but even amongst our own lives and amongst our people. May you be glorified forever and ever. Amen.